Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. At various points on the show, we have mentioned that someone we were talking about was an anti-vivisectionist. So that's included Emma Hardy, who was married to Thomas Hardy, as well as author Vernon Lee. And then we've also talked about anti-vivisectionists as a group opposing medical research and drug development that used living animals in some way. So that included the production of early smallpox vaccines and research into isolating and producing insulin. Sort of, it's a thing that has kind of come up in passing a lot almost. We haven't ever really focused on the anti-vivisection movement or talked in much more detail about what that meant. So the term vivisection was first used in English in the 18th century to describe the act of cutting or dissecting a living organism. So not, not an animal that had died, but an animal that was alive. And the words vivisectionist and anti-vivisectionist were both coined in the 19th century to describe people who either defended or opposed experiments that were done on live, non-human animals. Uh, The term vivisection is still used today. There are still anti-vivisection organizations But when people talk about this as a movement, they're generally focused on the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And that is what we are talking about today with the Brown Dog Affair. This was a series of demonstrations and riots surrounding a statue that had been erected in the Battersea area of London. The statue commemorated dogs who had been killed due to vivisection. Also, just to note, we are aware that humans are also animals. But adding the words non-human before animals every time we say it in this audio podcast, like that would be incredibly cumbersome. 
So we know everyone knows what we mean when we say humans and animals, and we recognize that, yes, humans are also animals. (laughs) There's almost part of me that wants to say it every time so people will realize how stilted it will become. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that is probably the last laughing that's really going to happen because this is, uh, you know, not the most fun subject. Vivisection became a major focus for animal rights activists in Britain, but the first animal cruelty laws to be proposed in the UK didn't reference it at all, because at that point it wasn't really being done in a formal or public way. Instead, laws proposed in the early 19th century focused primarily on blood sports like cockfighting and bull baiting, and on the treatment of livestock, farm animals, and working animals like cart horses. So these laws were motivated by changing attitudes about animals and how people thought animals should be treated, but they were also motivated by perceptions about poor and working-class people. There was a sense that watching and participating in blood sports or mistreating working animals would lead to some kind of moral decay or decline in poor people, There was not, however, as an example, a similar sense that activities like fox hunting would cause a decline among the rich. Like, there were people who opposed fox hunting, but there wasn't really, like, a a legislative pressure to try to stop rich people from hunting foxes. But there was a sense that cruelty to animals had a negative effect on people more broadly, particularly among animal rights activists and social reformers. Louis Gompertz, who established the Animals Friend Society in 1833, submitted a list of five reasons against cruelty to animals in the organization's periodical. Quote, first, it injures the animals themselves. Second, it injures the feelings of well-disposed persons, takes up their time, and creates animosity between them and the perpetrators. Third, it initiates mankind to be cruel to man. Fourth, its excess is generally so great as much to engage the attention otherwise due to the human species. Fifth, these reasons give birth to offense to the deity. One of the earliest animal protection laws to be passed in Britain was the Cruel and Improper Treatment of Cattle Act. That was also called Martin's Act after Irish Member of Parliament Richard Martin. Martin proposed a number of different animal protection laws during his political career, including other laws that targeted dogfighting and bear baiting. King George IV gave him the nickname Humanity Dick because of this focus on animal protection. Martin's Act was passed in 1822, and it outlawed, quote, the cruel and improper treatment of horses, mares, geldings, mules, asses, cows, heifers, steers, oxen, sheep, and other cattle. So it didn't cover animals like dogs and cats. It didn't mention vivisection. Similarly, when the Society for the Protection of Cruelty to Animals was first established in 1824, Its primary focus was on the humane treatment of carriage horses. 1824 was also the year that more people in the UK started to be exposed to the idea of vivisection, as French experimental physiologist François Magendie started holding public vivisections in London. Magendie is sometimes credited with introducing or at least popularizing animal experimentation as part of scientific and medical research in Europe. 
Although various anesthetics had been in use in parts of Asia for centuries, they really weren't widely used in Western medicine yet. And the first demonstration of modern anesthetics in Europe was still decades away. So the animals that Majendi vivisected were not anesthetized, and they were very clearly in pain. To make things worse, some of the descriptions of Majendi's demonstrations suggest that he was enjoying this. He was immediately denounced by animal rights activists. Richard Martin, among other people, called him a disgrace to society. Animal rights activists were not the only ones criticizing vivisection. A significant number of doctors and medical students disapproved of it as well. Medicine was in the process of becoming a more formalized, professionalized field, and a lot of people thought vivisection could damage the reputation of the entire profession. There were some parallels to the opposition to Ignaz Semmelweis's recommendation that doctors wash their hands, which was happening around the same time. In the view of the medical establishment, doctors were gentlemen. Gentlemen's hands were always clean, and gentlemen also did not cut into live animals. Some medical schools and institutes did start incorporating vivisection into their research work and their instruction, though. And as the practice spread, public opposition to it did as well. Some people called for strict regulation of vivisection to ensure that animals didn't needlessly suffer and that any procedures that were carried out on them would have some kind of a real positive impact, either for the animal or for humanity. Others called for vivisection to be banned entirely. In addition to this spectrum of how people opposed vivisection, there was also some variety in how anti-vivisectionists approached other animal rights issues. So, for example, some anti-vivisectionists were also vegetarians, while others weren't really opposed to eating meat or wearing leather or even hunting for sport. They saw vivisection as this, like, particularly cruel, specific thing. The anti-vivisection movement was largely led by women, and it had a lot of overlap with the suffrage movement. There was this sense that women and non-human animals shared a common struggle and that neither of them had equal rights with men or agency over their own lives. Many of the men who were active in the movement were laborers and trade unionists, and sometimes their advocacy carried kind of a similar sense that their bodies were being exploited through work just as animals' bodies were being exploited through vivisection. Because the anti-vivisection movement was so associated with women and because caring about animal welfare was seen as overly sensitive, men who were part of the movement were often disparaged as being effeminate. And people who supported vivisection just dismissed the entire movement as standing in the way of scientific and medical progress and valuing animal lives over human lives. Two women who later became a big part of the anti-vivisection movement were Lisa Chartau and Emily Augusta Louise Lindof Hogaby, who was known as Lizzie. They said of this dismissal, quote, We are all familiar with the again and again repeated description of the pain involved in experiments on animals as being similar to that caused by a prick of a pin. Words like the above quoted imply that anti-vivisectionists do not know the truth about vivisection and that if they did, they would at once give up their ill-informed agitation and replace it by a profound admiration for the great men who are engaged in this praiseworthy and unselfish practice. 
1876, Francis Power Cobb and the Victoria Street Society led an anti-vivisection campaign that ultimately led to the passage of an act to amend the law relating to cruelty to animals, also known as the Cruelty to Animals Act of 1876 and sometimes called the Vivisection Act of 1876. This act outlawed the performing of animal experiments that were, quote, calculated to give pain. Experiments on live animals were permissible only if they were performed with, quote, a view to the advancement by new discovery of physiological knowledge or of knowledge which will be useful for saving or prolonging life or alleviating suffering. In addition, people performing such experiments had to be licensed, and the animals had to be anesthetized to the point that they would feel no pain. If the animal was likely to feel pain after the procedure was over, or if the procedure caused serious injury, then the animal was to be euthanized before the anesthesia wore off, unless doing so would, quote, frustrate the object of the experiment. The act also banned vivisection as an illustration for lectures in places like medical schools, and it banned the performance of vivisection for the purpose of attaining manual skill at a procedure. But there were some exceptions to a lot of this. Vivisections during medical lectures were allowed if they were absolutely necessary for the instruction of people who were then going to go on to prolong people's lives or alleviate their suffering. If using anesthesia would, quote, frustrate the object of the experiment, then the experiment could be done without it. The law also laid out some special considerations regarding dogs, cats, horses, asses, and mules in vivisection. After this law was in place, vivisection continued to become more widespread. And we'll talk more about that after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be, with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel 
for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. As we mentioned before the break, under the Cruelty to Animals Act of 1876, vivisection required a license. Over the next 15 years after the law was passed, more than 675 people got one of those licenses. But that was a tiny, tiny fraction of the total number of people who were practicing medicine or teaching physiology or doing some other work that might involve vivisection. Most practitioners just really did not have anything to do with it. Even so, though, the number of vivisections was rising dramatically. According to Richard D. French, who published a book called Anti-Vivisection and Medical Science in Victorian Society in 1975, the number of vivisections rose from a little more than 300 a year in 1880 to 95,000 a year in the 19-teens. Two of the people who were conducting vivisections in London were physiologists Ernest Starling and William Bayliss, who worked at University College, London. The two of them were collaborators, and Bayliss was also married to Starling's sister. Among other things, Starling is credited with coining the word hormone after a series of discoveries the two men made together involving the function of the pancreas. A lot of this research was conducted on dogs. The vivisections that led to the brown dog affair were on one that was described as, quote, a big brown dog of the terrier type. In December of 1902, Starling conducted a procedure on this dog in which he tied off the dog's pancreas. This was part of ongoing research into diabetes. And he said that within a couple of days, the dog had recovered from that procedure and was acting normal and free from pain. Two months later, on February 2nd, 1903, Starling conducted a second procedure to inspect the results of that earlier ligation of the pancreas and to look at any fluid that was then contained in the pancreas. 
Although the Cruelty to Animals Act of 1876 was interpreted as meaning that an animal could not be subjected to vivisection more than once, this actually fell under one of its exceptions because Starling was, like, examining the changes that had been brought about by that first procedure, something he would not have been able to do if he had euthanized the dog afterward. But then Starling gave the dog to William Bayliss, who wanted to conduct a demonstration involving the dog's salivary glands for medical students at University College London. Bayliss hoped to stimulate the glands with electrodes and show that the pressure in the salivary system could be greater than the dog's blood pressure. For reasons that are unclear, though, this didn't work. Afterward, Bayliss gave the dog to a student named Henry Dale, who wanted to study the dog's pancreas further. After removing the pancreas, Dale euthanized the dog. Witness statements contradict on which method Dale used. As a side note, Dale would go on to be awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, along with Otto Lowy, for research into neurotransmitters. Two of the people who were in the audience during this demonstration involving the dog's salivary glands were Lysa Schartow and Lizzie Lindoff Hogaby, who we quoted back before the break. These were two upper-class women from Sweden who were feminists, vegetarians, and animal rights activists. Sometimes they are described as having infiltrated this lecture to expose the practice of vivisection. That's only part of the story, though. These two women had come to the UK to study physiology and to study how vivisection was being used in physiological research and instruction. They had enrolled at the London School of Medicine for Women, and their original plan had involved completing a full course of study, something they eventually abandoned because, in their words, quote, physiology is at present inseparable from experiments on animals, and nobody objecting to them could have any chance of obtaining a degree. The London School of Medicine for Women didn't allow vivisections, so Chartow and Lindoff Hogaby attended demonstrations at other institutions and organizations all around London. They kept a journal of their experiences and what they witnessed at these demonstrations, and at some point, they showed their notes to Stephen Coleridge, Honorary Secretary of the National Anti-Vivisection Society. On May 1st, 1903, Coleridge gave an address before an audience of about 2,000 people at an anti-vivisection society meeting. He detailed what the two women had seen. His remarks were also published in the London Daily News the next day, and in all of this, he specifically mentioned William Bayliss. Bayliss's attorney contacted Coleridge, saying that his statements about the vivisection were untrue, and after some back and forth failed to reach any kind of resolution, Bayliss sued Coleridge for libel. A trial ran for four days in November of 1903. Although Chartow and Lindoff Hogaby's account said that no anesthetic had been used during the demonstration and there had been no mention of an anesthetic administered previously, Bayliss and others associated with the university testified that the dog had been anesthetized to the point of unconsciousness. Chartow and Lindoff Hogaby appeared as witnesses, although their testimony was dismissed as hysterical. In the end, Bayliss was awarded 2,000 pounds in damages. Chartow and Lindoff Hagaby really don't seem to have anticipated that the account that they showed Coleridge was then going to lead to this trial and a libel suit against him. 
They had also published their journals as a book called The Shambles of Science, Extracts from the Diary of Two Students of Physiology. The February 2nd vivisection was in that book in a chapter that was called Fun. After the trial and this uh, judgment against Coleridge, they pulled their book They removed that chapter, and they made some other edits to try to protect themselves from further legal action before re-releasing it in 1904. While this trial did not find that Bayliss's vivisection had been unlawful in any way, it was widely covered in the press, and it brought a huge amount of publicity to the practice of vivisection in general, and to the big brown dog in particular. Anna Louisa Woodward, founder of England's branch of the World League for Protection of Animals, started raising money for a statue to commemorate the dog as well as all the other animals who were killed as a result of vivisection. This monument was made by English sculptor Joseph Whitehead with a statue of a bronze dog atop a marble water fountain for both people and dogs. It's a very tall fountain, like the if you were standing up, the, the dog portion would be above a person's head. Uh, This was ready in 1904, but a site wasn't ready for it to be installed until 1906. It was placed in Latchmere Recreation Ground at the center of Latchmere Housing Estate and was unveiled on September 15, 1906. This statue had an inscription that read, quote, in memory of the brown terrier dog done to death in the laboratories of University College in February 1903, after having endured vivisection extending over more than two months and having been handed from one vivisector to another till death came to its release. Also in memory of the 232 dogs vivisected at the same place during the year 1902, Men and women of England, how long shall these things be? Medical students, researchers, and others who thought vivisection was necessary and even laudable immediately disliked the statue and found its inscription to be needlessly incendiary and inaccurate. But for about a year, people who objected to it mostly just left it alone. But we will get to how that changed after another sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human, but if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. We mentioned earlier that the memorial to the brown dog had been placed at a recreation area at the center of Latchmere Housing Estate. This was a newly built council housing estate, in other words, a public housing development in the Battersea Borough of London. It was the first such development in England to be built by workers who had been directly hired and paid by the council. The Battersea Trades and Labor Council had advocated for this direct labor approach, arguing that it would help protect workers' pay and working conditions while also providing higher quality work for the community. The development itself also reflected Battersea's local politics, with streets who were named after radical politicians and leftists, as well as names like Freedom Street and Reform Street. At the start of the 20th century, Battersea had a progressive local government, with John Burns, who was a socialist and labor leader, representing Battersea in Parliament. The area was also home to a lot of labor activists, socialists, and political radicals. The National Anti-Vivisection Hospital, which was established in 1902, was located in Battersea. There was also the Battersea Dogs and Cats Home, sometimes just called the Battersea Dogs Home. This is one of the oldest animal rescues in the UK, founded by Mary Teelby in the Holloway District of North London in 1860. It had moved to Battersea in 1871 and started sheltering cats in 1883. Basically, if you were going to put an anti-vivisection dog statue, 
somewhere in London at the start of the 20th century, it just made a lot of sense to put it in Battersea. In 1907, a carnival was held in Battersea to raise money for the anti-vivisection hospital. There were three central funds that distributed donations to hospitals, but the anti-vivisection hospital really got little to no money from any of them. This was both because of its public stance against vivisection and all the kind of political nuance associated with that, and also because its motto of no vivisection in schools, no vivisectors on staff, no experiments on patients kind of seemed to imply that other hospitals were experimenting on patients. These funds kind of wanted to distance themselves from all of that. This carnival brought renewed attention to the anti-vivisection movement in Battersea and to the statue of the brown dog. And on November 20th, 1907, a group of medical students tried to smash it with a sledgehammer. Ten people were arrested and fined. Two days later, more students rallied in support of their arrested classmates and against the magistrate who had levied the fine. They tried to burn the magistrate in effigy, but they couldn't get it to light and wound up throwing it in the Thames. Five more people were arrested after a student demonstration on November 25th, and protests continued from there. According to a pamphlet that was uh, later published describing these protests, the anti-doggers, as they were known, had become, quote, alarmingly uncontrollable and unreasonable by about December 5th. On December 10th, at least a 1,000 people protested in Trafalgar Square, carrying brown toy dogs on poles and chanting things like, down with the brown dog. There were some, like, very petty anti-brown dog songs and chants that people wrote for this. At the same time, demonstrators in Battersea tried to wrench the dog off of its pedestal with a crowbar, but were dispersed by the police. On December 11th, protesters disrupted an anti-vivisection society meeting, shouting down the speakers, setting off crackers, and throwing, quote, quantities of a pungent chemical. As protests continued, students started burning dogs in effigy and marching with toy dogs impaled on stakes. Meanwhile, a variety of people came together in Battersea to try to resist these demonstrators and protect the statue, including suffragists, labor activists, and socialists. Some of the people who tried to defend the statue were anti-vivisectionists, but others saw this whole dispute as a symbolic defense of their own rights as laborers and as human beings, something that anti-vivisectionists thought might be diluting their message. All of this was covered extensively in medical journals, which generally sided with the students. One commentary published in the British Medical Journal offered the opinion that a student smashing the statue with a hammer would be, quote, doing what is his moral duty to his college, teachers, and comrades, and his strict legal duty to his country and his king. The medical publication Medical Press and Circular published a piece that described the riots as evidence of, quote, pent-up hatred felt by certain classes towards medical science and medical men, even though the medical students had generally been the instigators in all this. Newspapers covered the protests as well, with much of that coverage criticizing anti-vivisectionists and even the statue itself. A December 24th editorial in The Times called its inscription, quote, a downright lie, a gross, deliberate, carefully thought-out lie. 
The same day, the Times also published a piece from surgeon and pro-vivisection campaigner Stephen Paget, which called the Battersea Memorial no better than indecent exhibitions, obscene pictures, and blasphemous oratory. By the end of December 1907, the Battersea Borough Council was debating whether to change the statue's inscription to something that might not provoke so much ire. Then on January 7, 1908, Battersea's chief commissioner of police informed the council that it would need to either remove the statue or budget 700 pounds a year to pay for 24-hour police protection. In debates over what to do, Lizzie Lindoff Hagabee defended the statue's inscription word by word as accurate. A pamphlet detailing the protests and what had led to them was published under the name Edward K. Ford in 1908. This was probably a pseudonym, and there's speculation that Lindolf Hoggaby wrote it. If that's the case, though, there are passages that must have been included to try to dispel suspicion. Like, there's a whole passage on the author being surprised that suffragists were taking up the cause of anti-vivisection, because those two things seemed unrelated. But Lindolf Hoggaby was a feminist herself and would have known about the overlap between those two movements. There's also a passage in which the author talks about going to buy a copy of Shambles of Science to read it for himself, but of course, Lindolf Hoggaby co-wrote that. Although the Battersea Council ultimately voted to leave the statue's inscription unchanged, a new conservative administration was elected in November of 1909, and the newly installed councillors voted 42 to 4 to dismantle the memorial. A Brown Dog Memorial Defense Committee was established and gathered about 500 members, and about 200,000 people signed a petition opposing the statue's removal. The Animal Defense and Anti-Vivisection Society, which had been co-founded by Lizzie Lindoff Hagaby and Nina Douglas Hamilton, Duchess of Hamilton, coordinated protests against the statue's removal. In spite of all of that, the statue was secretly removed during the night in March of 1910 under police guard. It's believed that sometimes afterward it was destroyed, probably melted down so that a future administration could not reinstall it. A royal commission on vivisection had been established in 1906, prior to the start of the brown dog protests. It issued its report in 1912, finding that, quote, experiments on animals adequately safeguarded by law, faithfully administered, are morally justifiable and should not be prohibited by legislation. The report described the commissioners as hearing contradictory testimony on virtually every question they considered, which is unsurprising given that it heard testimony in favor of vivisection as well as testimony from anti-vivisectionists, including Coleridge and Lindolf Hoggaby. The commission did recommend hiring more inspectors to better enforce existing laws, as well as placing stronger limits on the methods that could be used to anesthetize or sedate an animal. The commission also recommended more restrictions to guarantee the painless euthanasia of animals that had been the subjects of experiments. Lizzie Lindoff Hagaby continued to be a leading figure in the anti-vivisection and animal rights movements, as well as being involved in other social and philanthropic causes, all the way until her death in 1963. She was involved in another libel case in 1913 after the Animal Defense and Anti-Vivisection Society put up a really pretty graphic anti-vivisection display. 
This display included a taxidermy dog that was made to represent the brown dog from 1903 after it had been vivisected. She filed suit against the Pall Mall Gazette for its coverage of the display, acting as her own attorney in court. Her testimony is described as being just kind of a marathon of, like, hours of opening statement. Although she lost this suit, it once again drew more attention to vivisection and the opposition to it. In the last years of her life, she worked with Fern Animal Sanctuary, which Duchess Hamilton had founded at the start of World War II, to help care for animals whose people were going off to war. The UK has passed a series of laws related to vivisection since the Brown Dog Affair, including the Protection of Animals Act of 1911 and the Animal Scientific Procedures Act of 1986. There are also additional laws that relate to animal rights and animal cruelty, including the Animal Welfare Act of 2006. As we mentioned at the top of the show, there are still anti-vivisection organizations in the UK and elsewhere that continue to advocate for a total ban on the practice. There are also, obviously, also organizations that are focused on, like, animal experimentation more broadly including things that you wouldn't really describe as a, as a vivisection because it doesn't really involve something like a surgical procedure. On December 12, 1985, a new dog monument by British sculptor Nicola Hicks was installed in Battersea Park in London. This dog is modeled after her own terrier, Brock, and it was commissioned by the National Anti-Vivisection Society and the British Union for the Abolition of Vivisection, It was moved to a different location in the early 1990s. As far as I know, it is still there. Then in 2021, Paula S. Owen published a novel about this called Little Brown Dog and also had a sort of lightweight model of the original monument produced. Uh, This model was placed for a time at the location of the original statue in Latchmere Recreation Ground, This was part of a campaign to have a full replica of the original statue permanently installed there. As far as I know, nothing has happened with that. I only found references to, like, the the lightweight model of it being placed, which is temporary as far as I know. So that's the brown dog affair. Do you have listener mail that is not that? (laughs) I do. I sure do. Um, So I... First thing I have, real quickly, this is from Luann, whose uh, email is about our World War II balloons episode. Luann wrote, Are you sure the balloon you mentioned was named the George Washington Park Curtis? Custis seems far more likely. Luann, uh, in fact, yes. We did mean George Washington Park Custis, and the outline said George Washington Park Custis, and I said Curtis for unknowable reasons. I don't know. My brain just auto-filled a more common name. You're going to reading jail. Yeah, George Washington Custis, uh, George George Washington Park Custis, adopted son of George Washington, father-in-law to General Robert E. Lee. Not a name I immediately had in my head. I obviously knew it was a historical figure because that's who boats get named after, but... um, Yeah, just sorry for auto-completing the wrong name. Uh, The other uh, is from Caitlin, and Caitlin wrote um, about a discussion that we had 
about uh, children's books that are accidentally traumatizing. And Caitlin wrote, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I've written a few times with tales for my job in a preschool, but your listener mail on the War Balloons episode had me cracking up. As a teacher whose policy is that if a kid can ask a question, they deserve some kind of answer that isn't a brush off. I've gotten into some strange conversations at story time. One notable exception was Madeline about the little French girl and her classmates. I loved those books as a child and I thought the rhymes and repetition might appeal to my kids, so I read it at Circle one day. Oops, some questions I got, all in preschooler dialect, of course. What's an appendix? (laughs) What was wrong with Madeline? What's a surgery? Do I gotta get a surgery? What's a scar? I can only imagine the conversations at home that day, and I still haven't figured out an explanation for the purpose of an appendix that satisfies a preschooler. Love the show and greatly look forward to each new episode. Caitlin. Caitlin then said, P.S. With the recent passing of Judy Human, might an episode about the Section 504 sit-in or the law itself be possible? So many people have no idea the breadth of loss the disabled community is facing. Judy was an icon who will be sorely missed. Um, So I have already written back to Caitlin, uh, and I told them that, um, number one, that story is hilarious about the Madeline things. Uh, Number two, um, we actually have already talked about the 504 sit-ins. It was in an episode that we did that was a six impossible episodes that was all about, like, direct action resistance with the 504 sit-ins being one of them. Judy Human also makes a very brief appearance in our episode on the independent living movement. Um, when I heard about her death, I was thinking about doing an episode specifically about her, but number, it can be very tricky sometimes to do an episode about a person who has just died. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, a lot of the things that we would be talking about in that episode, like the 504 sit-ins, have already been covered on other episodes. So I did want to just take a moment to recognize uh, Judy Human. Uh, so uh, thanks so much for this note, uh, Caitlin. Um, there are lots of uh, obituaries and retrospectives and things like that that are out there about Judy Human right now. And then... Judy also had, like, a podcast. (laughs) Very active in terms of communicating with people about disability and disability rights. So there is a wealth of information for folks uh, who want to know more. So thank you again, Caitlin, for this note. If you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And we're all over social media at Miss in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you like to get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. 